the Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast. I am Nia Marshall and today we are lucky to be joined by Mr. Richard Atkins QC, who is the head of chambers at St. Philip's Barristers. He's a bencher of Gray's Inn and is one of the country's most eminent criminal silks. Richard sits as a part-time Crown Court recorder and as a part-time fee-paid judge of the Mental Health Tribunal and also a tribunal chair for the Financial Reporting Council. He's also one of a small number of Judicial College tutor judges who train Crown Court judges. Interestingly, Richard was the chair of the bar in 2019 and the leader of the Midland Circuit from 2014 to 2017. In today's podcast, we will be discussing remote virtual hearings. Thank you for joining, Richard. Thank you, Nia. Now, before we delve into the to the substantive matter, I'd like for you to give us an overview of your journey to the bar. Certainly. Um, I don't have any legal background. Uh, my father had a shop in Coventry that um, sold spare parts for domestic appliances, washing machines, vacuum cleaners. Uh, my mother was a school teacher. I did pretty well at school. And um, when it came to deciding what to do at university, I decided to do law. I didn't really think I knew what else to do. I um, had a slight hiccup to begin with. I was rejected by four of the five universities I applied to. So I reapplied and got lucky a second time around uh, and went off to read law. Uh, I was initially thinking of um, joining the Royal Navy, but decided I'd get a qualification first. So decided to apply for the bar. I think back then when solicitors didn't have rights of audience, uh, I thought that um, I didn't want to be the person sitting behind the advocate. I wanted to be the advocate. So I went off to the bar school, joined Gray's Inn, and then um, did um, pupillage in London. Uh, the plan was to then go and do a short service commission in the Navy, but I, I went off that idea. So I did my 12 months in London doing a civil pupillage and then applied to Birmingham, coming back to the Midlands, where they took me on at one fountain court to do a third six pupillage. Uh, they put me with a, a criminal practitioner so that I could do some criminal work. And uh, I'm afraid I uh, never then moved away from doing crime. And after about five years, I gave up doing civil. So I started off doing smaller cases. They lead on to the bigger cases. And here we are 32 years on. I'm not quite sure how I've got here, but I'm a QC practicing doing crime and regulatory law. Now, we know that you are an eminent criminal silk, but could you also give us an overview of your experience in terms of your practice areas? Sure. Well, I started off, I did um, some pupillage in London. Um, initially, my plan was to join the Royal Navy, having done some pupillage, but I went off that idea. Um, so I did 12 months in London and then applied back to the Midlands um, from Coventry originally, I think I've already said. And I had a third six pupillage at uh, One Fountain Court. Um, I did civil work for about the first five years, having done a civil pupillage in London. But they put me, when I moved to Birmingham, with a criminal practitioner to do uh, a little bit of crime and get some experience of advocacy. And I'm afraid it stayed with me. Uh, my pupil master is uh, also in silk and we do cases together now, which is delightful. Uh, but I started off doing small criminal matters um, and then you, um, you you build up as you go. I'm not quite sure where 32 years has gone, but 
you work your way through the ranks and suddenly find you're in silk and uh, leading in the bigger cases. So I have what I describe as an F-word practice, fraud, filth and fatality. So death, um, sex cases, uh, fraud cases, and I also do regulatory work, health and safety and trading standards. Interesting indeed. Now, we do know that COVID has had a significant impact on the justice system, and it actually has introduced the, the use of remote virtual hearings. Now, let's start with your thoughts on, on remote virtual, virtual hearings. Well, Lord Justice Leveson had um, done a review uh, prior to COVID and um, had uh, indicated that we should all be using technology more. So I had actually done a few remote hearings using the telephone. We weren't really using video links very much. Um, I'd done a couple of hearings where I've been dealing with a terrorist case and uh, I was in Birmingham and they were being operated from the Old Bailey. Uh, but all of a sudden, come March of last year, um, we were suddenly forced into adopting all of this technology. I was actually sitting as a recorder in uh, the Crown Court in Worcester uh, and we went into lockdown uh, and I went from the Monday when I had people in front of me and in theory we were about to start a jury trial to the next day when we were told no one's coming. So we were forced into this position of, of having to find a way around, certainly in the criminal courts. Um, and um, we've had to uh, adapt and adopt. We tried all sorts of things to begin with. I say we, the, the powers that be. There was Skype, there were telephone hearings. Now we're using the cloud video platform and it's forced us to up our game. Uh, and I think it's been a, a good thing. It, it doesn't work for everything, as I suspect we'll discuss in a short while. Uh, but it has meant that we've moved on in leaps and bounds uh, and we're able to do uh, a lot more than we would ever have thought of this time last year. How did you feel initially um, moving into, to, I guess, immersing yourself more into these virtual hearings? Was it a feeling of, of being overwhelmed? No, I, I was fortunate because, as I say, I was actually sitting that week as a judge. So uh, I've got people who were able to help uh, get the the, uh, the kit set up, and uh, I was trying any way I could. Um, I sent out messages to uh, the clerks in the Midlands um, so that they knew if people were in front of me, I was not expecting to see them uh, in court the next day because I, I think a lot of people panicked and worried about what they should be doing. Uh, and I said we'd do we'd use whatever technology we could. So I said I would use the telephone. We potentially had Zoom, although. Um, it was then decided that we couldn't use that as a, a platform and we used what we could. And I did um, hearings where I had a defendant who was in prison uh, up on the screen. I had advocates on remote telephone link and I was effectively acting as the go-between at that stage where the advocates were telling me something. I was repeating it so the defendant could hear what was happening. And it was sort of boxing and coxing and we, we got through it. Uh, from an advocate's point of view, uh, of course, it was scary because we all needed to have the right amount of kit um, and make sure that it all worked. I know that I had a problem in my house, my study. The um, the Wi-Fi link struggled for a while, so I've had to remedy that. Uh, and I was moving around the house to find the best Wi-Fi signal I could. Uh, but um, it was a challenge. But if we wanted to keep working, which, of course, we all did because we wanted to keep earning, we had to, uh, we had to uh, meet the challenge. Now, what did you find were some of the key technological uh, infrastructure that needed to be implemented before permitting these remote hearings? 
I think the big thing is that you have to have a, a Wi-Fi connection that works. That's the, the biggest problem. Uh, and a laptop that can cope. I've actually just upgraded. Uh, I decided that I needed a more powerful laptop. Um, I'm fortunate because I'm in a position where I could afford to go out and buy one. Uh, I know that um, some of my colleagues are not as fortunate, and particularly those starting off at the bar may not have the resources to, to go and buy uh, the best piece of kit. But I think that a lot of uh, IT um, technology now has improved massively. And so people are able to use the, um, the CBP or Skype or whatever. Um, and um, their, their computers are now much more able to, to cope uh, with what's being thrown at us. So it was, it's really, I think, the biggest issue is is broadband width uh, and making sure, in my case, last year, that uh, my son and daughter, who were both at home, were not busy downloading things at precisely the moment I was trying to make some representation to a, a, a Crown Court judge. Very practical uh, considerations indeed. Now, switching to, to well, you putting on your judge hat for a, for a little bit, what are some of the considerations that you found that you, you had to assess before determining whether to permit a remote hearing? Now, I know you started to speak about uh, Wi-Fi and, and broadband width, but uh, surely there are some other considerations as well. I, I was having to deal with this in the very first week of lockdown. I think things have moved on. And um, of course, I, I only sat for a short period of time then. Um, so... The, the biggest problem that the courts faced from a judicial point of view was how on earth they coped in a criminal world, which is my world, with dealing with jury trials, which I'm afraid came to a complete halt at that point. I think the, the biggest thing, if we move away from the technology itself, the most important thing is the interest of justice. And can justice actually not only be done, but be seen to be done uh, remotely? So we, we've had to work our way around um, the various problems that that has thrown up. For my part, uh, I'm very happy dealing with as many hearings as I can remotely. Um, applications, pre-trial hearings, in my view, can largely be done using the technology. Uh, as I said, before the COVID issue, I'd also argued various cases on the telephone when I uh, had a case in the magistrate's court and uh, also uh, on the link when I was dealing with a, uh, a judge who was sitting at the Old Bailey at the time and I was up in Birmingham. I think it's more complicated to do a jury trial fully remotely. I don't think it's been tried. I have been fortunate in since September that I have been able to do a number of trials I've actually physically been in court to do them, but we have had witnesses over the link, although they tend to be experts rather than witnesses as to fact. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, myself at the moment that the technology is good enough to have witnesses as to fact really giving evidence and having the whole thing done remotely. I think jurors still need to see a majority of witnesses in court Although having said that, we have had now for many years the situation where uh, complainants in rape cases or vulnerable witnesses give evidence, although they're at court, they're in another room and they're on a link. But that often tends to be uh, better than the, uh, the Wi-Fi system and setup. Now, you made an interesting point uh, referencing uh, justice, and it made me start to think about parties who are who are involved 
um, besides advocates and, and how this process would have impacted them in terms of their access to technology and, and dealing with distractions as well in, in some person's homes. Um, how, how do you think this, this would have impacted upon them? I think that initially the thought was that we would only be uh, allowing people to watch what was going on if they came to court, if we're talking to members of the public or members of uh, family members of either victims or, or defendants uh, in cases. Uh, and so a number of Crown Courts had a setup or a system set up where they would have the judge and the jury in one court with some of the advocates, perhaps some of the defendants and some of the advocates in a second court that would be linked in, and then a third court available for those who wanted to view what was going on. But of course, the backlog has meant to a backlog of cases that we're having to try and overcome has meant that the courts are trying to use as many courts as possible. And I know that in a case I've got coming up shortly, uh, what is anticipated is that various um, that those people who want to view what's going on, so families of the defendants or family of the victim, uh, will be allowed to dial in, join in remotely from their own homes. Now, of course, the problem is that we're not allowed to record Crown Court proceedings, so people have to be told that and hope that they abide by it. You also have to have it spelled out very clearly that they need to understand where their mute button is. In a case I did recently in front of the High Court judge, we had, um, I shan't name them, but um, some people who should probably have known better, uh, professionals who were listening in, who didn't manage to hit the mute button. Uh, and all of a sudden, midway through a witness, um, a kerfuffle started when they somebody walked into the room that these people were in, started chatting away. And of course, they were oblivious to the fact that it was now broadcasting all over the, uh, the Crown Court proceedings. But I think we are now reaching a point where uh, interested parties are going to be allowed to link in um, and can watch so that we don't exclude um, the victims' uh, families or the defendants' families. Um, and it may be that the families of the defendant haven't had very much opportunity of seeing their uh, loved ones because they've been locked up for many months and for far longer than they would have been had we not been in this COVID uh, times when I know that prison visits are, are blocked. So they, they're desperate to see what's going on. I know that sometimes it can be hard to imagine uh, that there's there are some of us who are less fortunate and don't actually have access to Wi-Fi or the relevant technology to tune in. How do you think the the court actually goes about uh, dealing with with those parties so that they can also to be involved in in viewing those proceedings? Well, I think if it's the families of the, the victim or victims, the police and the Crown Prosecution Service will uh, do their level best to ensure that there's some way they can watch uh, what's happening. It's different if it's the, the family of the um, the defendants who are on trial. But I know that um, a number of solicitors firms have managed to make space available and um, supply or allow people to use their equipment, although that doesn't always work. I suspect that most people nowadays have access to um, some form of computer equipment, whether it be a, um, a mobile phone or maybe an iPad or something of, of, of that nature. So most people, I think, are able to view what's going on. And I think everyone tries the hardest to ensure that those who perhaps don't have the equipment can, uh, with the, the, a way will be found that they can participate. 
but it's not easy. I mean, it's the same. Uh, I know from um, my experience of having children that some are fortunate and have computer equipment that they can use to carry on their studies and, and others that may be uh, a number of members of the family all trying to use the same piece of equipment. Um, so it's something we have to look at and be mindful of. Yes, I, I very much agree. And, and turning to the role of, of the court uh, in all of this, does the court actually arrange uh, the, the remote virtual hearing? Well, in the Crown Court, we use what's called the CVP, the cloud video platform. You have to have um, used Google Chrome rather than uh, any other brand uh, on the market. But you will be sent a, a link uh, which you click on and then um, that gets you into a, a waiting room uh, and then the court invites you in and can obviously shut you down and exclude you if uh, if it needs to. Uh, so you don't actually need anything other than the ability to get online and have Google, uh, Google Chrome downloaded on whichever device you're using. It's overcome the problem that we were having with people not having, for example, Skype or Zoom or Teams which they would have to have purchased or downloaded themselves. This is just a, a click on a link and you're you're in. That seems very helpful. So would you say that uh, then in a criminal context, it's is CVP then used uh, largely? Are there any other platforms that the, the courts utilise? Well, that's the only platform that I'm aware they're using at the moment. Um, they tried various others. Uh, in, in other um, jurisdictions, I think they've been using um, Skype and they use Teams. But in the, in the criminal courts, it's this CVP that's being used. Now, I know we spoke earlier about some of the challenges uh, in terms of internet connections during a hearing. But how, how do you find those challenges are addressed uh, when a hearing is actually taking place in terms of time lapses and, and unavoidable interruptions as well? I think to an extent you have to go with the flow. It's It would be very easy to get very cross about a, a whole raft of things. I also sit as a, a mental health tribunal judge and that can have its complications because sometimes you're dealing with people who find it very difficult to control their actions or emotions because of the particular problems that they have. And I've had a number of cases where people have um, switched off the equipment, even though they're in a room with, with other professionals. And you can't get cross because uh, on the whole, this isn't really their fault in, in the mental health world that I operate in. It's often the, uh, the unfortunate consequences of the illness that these poor people are suffering from, uh, which isn't their own fault. In the criminal courts, of course, you have to, uh, it's a much more formal process and the judge has to ensure that you don't have people disrupting what's happening, but you have the capacity there to, to mute somebody or to actually shut them out of the, uh, the hearing. In terms of actually dealing with somebody, a delay can be a complication. You do have to adapt your advocacy, I think, uh, and you have to make sure that questions are short, and that you pause and you wait until the witness uh, has then answered the question. The difficulty, of course, is that if a witness is straying um, from the path that you want them to be on, if you're in court, you may have much more control because you, you get much more of a feeling of what's happening. You can pick up on body language. If I'm an advocate, I can put my hand up to sort of stop somebody. 
the way the system is set up in most of the crown courts is that you have a very big screen on a wall that's a considerable distance away um, and um, the camera is on that screen looking at the, the advocate and you may then be quite a small person in the, the view of the um, uh, the witness. The witness will be sitting in front of their own technology. So as I'm sure we're all familiar with um, Zoom or Teams or whatever now, your, your face fills the screen, whereas in court, the advocate is um, many metres away. And so you lose some of the interaction and you lose some of the, the body language and you lose some of the ability to control what's happening. So you have to adapt your your advocacy to uh, to cope with that. And from your experience uh, of, of sitting in these hearings, do you find that generally the norm is that people will uh, conform to to the to these new standards? I, th- I think so. The bar always adapts. We've had all sorts of things come along and be thrown at us, and we get on with it. And uh, I've been doing training with Grey's Inn. I've spoken to our students and new practitioners and given tips and guides as to what I think works now that we have to work remotely. So I think the advocates have to adapt because if you don't adapt, then the, the courts will say, well, we're not going to run these these hearings. And of course, in uh, this COVID lockdown, if we're not actually coming to court, we're um, we're not being paid. So <laughs> there's a an incentive for most members of the bar to uh, conform and to get to know how to operate all of their uh, equipment. As I said, really the the witnesses who have been giving evidence remotely, on the whole, in my experience, have been expert witnesses in in these cases. So they know what they're doing. They will log on. I did have a problem in a case I've just finished where the uh, the expert had a problem with his microphone, uh, but we just had to take it gently. And although it was irritating, uh, there was no point getting irritated. Uh, and the judge dealt with it very, uh, very well. And um, we just had to slow down and keep reminding this particular chap that he'd got to speak into his microphone rather than turning away. We haven't had the position where we've had people who might be disruptive because uh, most witnesses are still appearing at court with all the safety provisions uh, brought in and defendants will be at court and giving evidence in court. So if there's any chance of disruption, you've got the judge on hand to, to keep a fairly tight rein on things. No, I think one thing is absolutely clear um, for members of the bar or persons who are hoping to be members of the bar, we do need to remain resilient and, and willing to adapt. Now, I'm sure that these remote hearings uh, do have some benefits. Do do any of these benefits come to mind? Well, in the past, we always had to appear in court. So I live in Birmingham. If I were instructed to appear in a case at the Old Bailey, I was up at the crack of dawn on the train uh, and it may be it was only a mention. Um, So I'd be travelling for, say, three hours, costing me several hundred pounds potentially to turn up to do a mention and then to um, get back on the train and go to Birmingham. Now I can roll down to my study. I can do some work until the allotted time. Uh, I can appear at a remote hearing, a directions hearing for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, log off and be at my desk already and able to carry on and do other cases um, or to prepare other cases or I can appear in different courts on the same day because I'm able to well, my clerks are able to 
uh, get me a time marking. So I can have a 10 o'clock hearing in Birmingham remotely and an 11 o'clock hearing in Coventry and a 12 o'clock hearing in Nottingham or whatever. Personally, as a silk, I don't have quite that many cases. But uh, for the juniors who will have a number of cases uh, on the go, I suspect it's much easier and much cheaper for them uh, to be doing it this way. And for my part, I very much hope that once we've beaten COVID, we don't go back to the idea that you travel for several hours and get charged a lot of money for petrol, parking, train fare, whatever, to do a 15-minute hearing. I think we have to embrace this technology. As I say, I'm not sure that it's going to enable us to do fully remote trials because I'm not sure that really a jury trial is, is quite kitted up for that, but we can use it to our advantage. Definitely seems more convenient and, and less expensive, especially uh, when you so helpfully uh, gave us your typical uh, scenario or example. Now, I'm sure as well that there are some some cons or some disadvantages of these hearings, because I, I have noted that you, you stated that obviously all hearings can't uh, be remote. Are there any other disadvantages that do come to mind? Well, I think one of the, the, the problems, one of the things that worries me slightly is that the way that the bar has traditionally worked is that the very junior members cut their teeth by picking up returns from the more senior members. And when I was starting out, a more senior member couldn't be in Coventry at 10 o'clock and Nottingham at 11. So they made a decision and they would do the more important case and the less important case would be given to somebody more junior. Now, this remote way of working does allow people to look after their own cases and make sure that they service them. But it means that the crumbs then aren't falling from the tables for the more junior people to pick up uh, and, and other cases. So my fear is that uh, whilst it is helpful to many, those who are trying to establish a practice will have a harder time doing it because they're not going to pick up the returns that when I started out uh, in the early 90s were a, a regular part of, um, of life at the bar. Uh, so people are going to have to adapt. My fear is we might see a shrinking of the bar. Having said that, with the backlog of trials that we have, I think um, when we can actually get all the trials up and running, there's going to be a lot of work and people are still going to be needed because we're not going to be able to service all of our own trials when they're trying to get rid of the backlog. That's definitely uh, some food for thought. Now, in terms of advocacy, online advocacy, uh, do you think that advocacy potentially changes when utilising these online platforms? I think it does. I think, as I say, you have to slow down. I think that was one of the biggest lessons I learned when I was being led on one occasion and my leader many years ago now let me do something. He said, just slow down. And it's it's something that takes a while to get used to. But with the technology, you really do need to slow it down so that people understand. You may not be able to see the judge's pen. Uh, that was always a reasonable indication of how well you were doing. So that's the first thing. You need to get your kit set up so that it looks as though you are actually looking at the witness. Um, this is one of the things I've said when I've been doing the, uh, the pupillage and new practitioners training, either on circuit or for the inn. 
if I am on a remote hearing, I ensure that I have, I, I operate several screens, but I make sure that the screen and the camera that I'm looking into enables me to look pretty much straight into it. And I have a second screen immediately behind where if I'm reading something, I have the words just above the camera on my laptop. So it looks as though I'm looking straight into it. I've said to a number of people, for example, that they may have their camera mounted on a screen at an angle and then they're looking at a screen on their laptop in a different way and it looks distracted. It looks as though you're not really paying attention. So you have to adapt and make it appear that you are talking to the person, even though what you're actually talking to is a, a little pinprick of a, a camera on your laptop screen. Um, I've actually heard of somebody who... Um, has uh, cut out a, a little face of a judge and stuck it over the camera so that they are actually looking at the judge uh, and addressing the judge because it gives them something to actually look at and talk to, uh, which isn't a bad idea. It reminds you of uh, what you're actually meant to be doing. Definitely. I, I think uh, some of us are going to have to take that little tip as well. Do you have, uh, perchance, any do's and don'ts as well for performing online advocacy? I suppose it's make sure you're ready. Always have a look over your shoulder because I've seen some absolute howlers with people having suddenly had to move because their Wi-Fi's crashed in one room and they've rushed into another room and, and what's over their shoulder is um, their underwear hanging over the end of the bed or something like that, which, of course, is completely distracting to anyone else looking. So make sure that you're uh, in a quiet area. Make sure that you've locked the dog out if necessary. The children know they're not meant to be coming in or suddenly playing on some game. Make sure that it's a, a reasonable backdrop behind and make sure you um, find out whether you're actually on a camera hearing uh, or whether there's no camera. Because I've also heard of some howlers where people have sort of wandered in almost in their pyjamas and then link in thinking it's uh, uh, not a camera hearing and suddenly find that they're being broadcast and having to slink out very rapidly and grab a jacket and tie. Um, and if you're one of those people who wears the jacket and tie uh, but is wearing something different uh, on your lower half, just remember that when the court usher says court rise, you don't stand up because um, you suddenly give the game away that you're still in your pyjama bottoms. <laughs> Definitely some helpful uh, practical tips there. Now, I know that we were speaking earlier about witnesses and I know you were making uh, reference to the fact that advocates have to be aware that they need to slow down as well. How else do you think witnesses are managed uh, effectively uh, when in this online setting? My own view is that it's the judge who really should take the lead. And when I am dealing with my mental health tribunal cases, initially before the video platform came on, we were doing them on a, a telephone link. Now that was really quite difficult because you couldn't see people and you'd have people in all different locations. But I would make sure that I explained to everybody that they would all have their turn, uh, that the, the patient whose application it was could go first, give us their evidence, and I would come back to them and hear from them in due course. I think the same applies when you're on a video link hearing. Uh, I think the judge needs to set the ground rules to make it clear who speaks and when, and that people will be given an opportunity of saying their piece at the appropriate time. And just firmly, uh, well, gently, but firmly 
making clear that this is a court of law. It's important that we hear what everybody has to say and we do it gently. So I try and put people at ease if I'm sitting as the judge. Equally, if I'm the advocate, you can't put everybody at their ease because sometimes you've got to try and take people apart if you're cross-examining them. But you don't need to be unpleasant and you try and, and do it as, as gently as possible, as slowly as possible, but um, making it clear that whether you're the judge or the advocate, you're a person in authority and the person who you're questioning just needs to listen and answer the questions. Now, do you think that the remote attendance of witnesses actually cause issues or potential issues uh, regarding credibility? It's difficult, isn't it? Because I think the traditional view of the bar is you need to see a witness and you can tell whether they're lying and jurors need to see witnesses and they can see what's happening. But of course, that ignores the fact that there are many blind people who serve as jurors who, of course, can't see the witness, but they can judge what's happening. You can hear, you you can listen, you can evaluate. So it's i suppose it's a, almost a, it's a an element of of unconscious bias our initial thought is well if we don't see them how can we if we don't actually see them in the flesh how can we actually really evaluate but we started many years ago having vulnerable witnesses and complainants in sex cases and children give evidence as i said remotely although they'd be in a room at the court just not in the courtroom itself and jurors are able to assess witnesses judges are able to assess witnesses So I don't think it's as big a problem as we thought. But, of course, I don't know whether it it happens. I I did have a case recently where I was midway through cross-examining somebody and then a link of somebody viewing went down. Afterwards, I thought, crumbs, did that go down? And they they asked to just pause proceedings because I was actually doing well with the person who was their witness and denting their credibility. I think that's probably a cynical view. and I don't believe that was what was happening. But you have that potential that somebody who is having perhaps a tough time might suddenly pull the plug or knock water over the laptop, which wouldn't happen in court. But I don't think it's happening. And I think on the whole, things are working pretty well. But I think you just have to be aware. The judge has to be aware. The advocates have to be aware. And if somebody thinks something isn't working then they just need to raise it with the judge. So I think we just have to be alive to the the various complications. But as I say, I think it's the, the technology still, I don't think is quite up to having a position where every witness could be dealt with remotely. And on the back of that point then, where do you think the line should be drawn between when witnesses should be allowed to attend remotely and when they should be compelled to attend physically? I think it depends on the evidence they're giving. I think it depends on the nature of the case. I think it's still important that we have people come to court and are seen and and appear in court on the whole. But I've called witnesses in cases who've been abroad. So I prosecuted a a large fraud a few years ago and I had a witness who went along to a, a hotel. They set up a camera and he gave his evidence, and actually his evidence was clearer on that link from, from India than some of the, the links I've had from prisons sort of down the road. So it can work, but I think the technology still has the potential to 
let things down um, rather more than we would like. So as the technology develops, then yes, we may move to, to more remote hearings. But at the moment, I still think on the whole, in a, in a, a, a trial where someone's liberty is at stake in a criminal court, on the whole, I think we really need to have as much done in court as we can manage. But if it means that you have a, an expert who can give expert evidence over the link and can do it, it doesn't work for everybody because some people need to demonstrate things and, and, and show things. But if it's somebody saying, well, I examined the body and I examined the bones and the bones had fractures, then they can do that over a link. Uh, so it's it, it's weighing up the case itself uh, and um, making a decision as to whether in the interest of justice, really justice can be, be seen to be done, I think. We're not quite there yet for fully remote hearings. And I suppose I don't really want to go to that point, but partial uh, remote hearings, I don't have a problem with. And I think that brings us nicely to to our last point, uh, where I was going to ask you, uh, post-COVID-19, do you think remote hearings will become the new normal? <laughs> I very much hope they become the new normal for pre-trial hearings, for mentions, for hearings where you can argue the law um, and you don't physically need to be in court in a pre-trial setting. Uh, so I think we need to make much more use of them. Um, it saves cost. It, uh, it, it, I think it assists uh, and enables advocates to look after their cases. So I very much hope that we don't go back to right, everybody now has to be at court. Uh, I think that would be a retrograde step. And if you think back to where we were 12 months ago with technology, I mean, I think I'd only just heard of, of Zoom at that point. Now, Zoom is something you do almost on a daily basis. So the technology, I think, will continue to improve, which will help. But as far as actual trials are concerned, I think we do need to get back into court, um, get the courts up and running for the actual trials to uh, to take place. So it's a, it's, it's a bit of both. I don't see everything being done remotely. It hasn't been. Um, I don't think that would be right. But I do think there's a lot that we can do that means that um, we yeah, we don't have to be in court for every hearing. And this concludes our discussion on remote virtual hearings quite neatly, actually. So thank you, Richard, for joining us today and finding that time in your busy schedule to fit us in. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at AGI Students.